If I have the honor of being president, I promise you I will lead. I will do everything I can to take responsibility and ease this burden on you and your families. I'll put your family first. President Joe Biden now has the chance to turn his campaign promises into reality. That will begin with a dramatic expansion of health coverage and bold steps to lower health care costs. For the first time in a decade, Democrats control both chambers in Congress and the White House. Between the pandemic, undoing certain Trump administration actions, and threats to the Affordable Care Act, the to-do list is long. And Democrats' razor-thin majorities in Congress make that list an even tougher lift. Today, the Democrats' health care agenda in Washington and how the legacy of the ACA could shape the party's policy plans for 2021 and beyond. From the studio at the Leonard Davis Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. To help us get a handle on federal health reform over the next two years, we've invited Jonathan Cohn, senior national correspondent for HuffPost and author of a new book, The Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. Hey, Jonathan. Hi, thanks for having me on the show. So you've published this book about what you consider the 10-year war over the Affordable Care Act and the policy goals that it represents. Jonathan, did you expect this battle to last so damn long? No. Uh, I know I covered the Affordable Care Act debate in real time, 2008, 2009, 2010. I remember very distinctly, I was in the House chamber when the main piece of legislation passed. The yeas are 220, the nays are 215. The bill is passed. And it had been a massive crowd that night in the House chamber. Everyone worked on the bill was there, lots of spectators. I mean, it was a real sense of history. But within an hour, it had cleared out. I'd never been there before that late. The, the, the Capitol building was empty. It's dead quiet. And I remember having this, like, one of those journalist epiphanies, like, oh, I'm going to use this at some point. Like, this is a metaphor for the affordable crap. You've had this huge fight. Now the law is passed. Finally, we can t- lower the temperature. We can move on. A lot of people thought that. Obama thought that. You know, he, in his signing ceremony two days later, makes a statement. Well, you know, this moment of new beginnings. It is fitting that Congress passed this historic legislation this week. For as we mark the turning of spring, we also mark a new season in America. In a few moments, when I sign this bill, all of the overheated rhetoric over reform will finally confront... Finally, we're going to move past this very contentious debate. And, of course, we didn't. (laughs) We were all wrong. I mean, it's interesting, right? The Affordable Care Act passed only with, I think, like one Republican vote or something like that. So in some ways, it really foreshadows the reality that we're living in today. I really think it does. I, I think this really was the the case study and how our politics have changed. Um, this was the moment. Not only do Republicans not vote for it, they spend the next 10 years fighting it and trying to rip it out. We want Obamacare repealed. Not a year from now, not six months from now, but now. And we don't care about a replacement. We do not need um, socialized medicine of any type. We need to have freedom of choice. Radical communists and socialists. Somebody ought to investigate that like Glenn Beck has been doing. I'm telling you right now, this whole Obama administration is unconstitutional. 
Obviously, your book largely looks at all of the fights and the struggles of the past decade. But, of course, the war is still being waged, with the latest front at the Supreme Court with that California v. Texas case pending. Jonathan, do you see the ACA fixes near the top of Congress's agenda? Yeah, I do think it is high on the list. One thing to watch, obviously, you want to pay close attention to is who's in Congress. And so, you know, you look, who's the new chairman of the Senate Finance Committee? Is Ron Wyden, who is a real wonk. He's a healthcare guy. Um, Patty Murray, who's going to be chairwoman of the health committee in the Senate, also cares about healthcare. You know, the constraints are that they got a pretty full agenda right now. If and when Democrats do get around to working on the ACA, what are a few major shortcomings you would expect them to revisit? So I think the first thing on everyone's list is going to be making the financial assistance for people buying insurance more generous. I think when you look at the shortcomings of the Affordable Care Act, where uh, where it caused hardship, so many of them trace back to the fact that it's underfunded. Um, it just does not provide enough help to people who are buying insurance, given how much insurance costs in the United States. It's an easy fix to do. It's something people feel in their pockets. And by the way, it's something you can do uh, I don't know if you want to get in the weeds of a congressional process, but you can do it through the budget reconciliation process where you only need 50 votes. In fact, the very same day we interviewed Jonathan, President Biden released a plan to do exactly this as part of his emergency relief package. Right now, the people who qualify for help with Obamacare premiums earn 400% or less of the federal poverty level. That's about $100,000 or less for a family of four. Biden's plan would extend premium help to folks with higher incomes, and he would also make aid for lower-income Americans more generous. Jonathan also thinks Biden will use executive action to restore Obamacare outreach funding to help boost enrollment and rein in short-term insurance plans that are super cheap but offer skimpy coverage. And then you got the public option. Progressives really want that. So I think there's going to be some tension there. I don't know where that comes out, but I don't think the Biden administration can just walk away from that. And a public option is a health insurance plan run by the federal government that would, in fact, compete with private insurance plans. And so people who go to the exchanges right now and get their care through the Affordable Care Act, they buy a plan from United or Aetna or Blue Shield a public option would actually offer consumers another choice with the hope that this new competition would drive prices down. Yes. There was one other item on the Biden agenda. It didn't get a lot of attention. I actually think it's probably the most, among the most important things they could do. But that would be to open up the exchanges to people who have employer insurance available to them. I will be interested to see if that's something they pursue. There's a great line uh, in the book from Senator Wyden who says, employer-based coverage is melting like a popsicle in the summer sun. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, like we were saying earlier, you know, Ron Wyden uh, is a very wonky guy. He knows a lot about health care. I think he can see down the road in the future that employer insurance probably isn't going to last forever. When we come back, Jonathan tells a story talks bipartisanship and provides a much-needed primer on budget reconciliation. 
Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back. We're talking with HuffPost senior national correspondent Jonathan Cohn about the Democrats' health policy agenda and how the legacy of the ACA may shape the party's policy plans. Jonathan, we were talking about the public option, and in your new book, The Ten-Year War, Obamacare, and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage, you talk about this one moment featuring former Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman that seems to foreshadow what Democrats may face this year. Can you tell us that story? Sure, sure. So uh, the public option, I mean, just to set the scene here. So Harry Reid, he's the Senate Majority Leader. He's trying to put together a bill and he's looking at his votes. He's like, huh, I got a problem. I got a bunch of conservative Democrats who don't want the public option. The, the biggest problem is Joe Lieberman. And when you talk to Democrats, Lieberman frustrates them more than anyone because Joe Lieberman's from Connecticut. Come on, this is one of the most liberal states in the country. So Reid starts bargaining. And they come up with another idea, which is to open up Medicare to people who are younger and letting them buy, you know, not everybody, but 55 and older or 50 and older, you know, let them buy into it. It was an idea Lieberman had endorsed when he'd run as VP alongside Al Gore. And then Lieberman on a Sunday morning goes on Face the Nation TV and they ask him, would you support this new idea? But I will tell you that on one part of it, the so-called Medicare buy-in, from what I hear, I certainly would have a hard time voting for it because it has some of the same infirmities that the public option did. It, it will add taxpayer costs. It will add to the deficit. It's unnecessary. And he says, no, I will not support this. If it's in the bill, I will block it. Progressives were furious at that point. So at the end, that's how the public option died. And really, this idea of beggars can't be choosers is sort of what we end up with. That is the ACA. It is this series, as you point out, it is this series of compromises. And it's often the sort of true believers compromising with their more conservative members. Yeah, I think over and over again, throughout the course of the ACA, you see that dynamic playing out. We talked earlier, you know, we were saying that what's the most important things you can do to fix the ACA? Well, you can fund it better because it was underfunded. Well, why was it underfunded? Well, there's a variety of reasons. But a big one was that, you know, conservative Democrats were scared of a big price tag. And the bill at the end of the day was a lot less generous than the liberals wanted. They wanted to give people more help. And just the politics, they felt like they pushed the envelope as far as they could. It was really interesting to read President Obama's account of getting the ACA passed and how much Democrats really sort of contoured around trying to curry favor with a handful of moderate Republicans. We're in a new era 
10 years later where the idea of bipartisanship sort of seems like a relic. How do you think that could shape policy action over even just the next two years? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the new bipartisanship is getting the two wings of the Democratic Party to agree. (laughs) I really do. Um, The Republican Party does not look like it did 30 or 40 years ago, and you're just not going to get much buy-in on anything. But one interesting question, uh, this is my opinion, is that you know bipartisanship, particularly during the Obama era, one reason to do bipartisanship was for the appearance of bipartisanship, right? But I think a lesson of the of the last 20, 30 years really is that whatever upside you get from appearing to be bipartisanship is going to be more than offset by the downside of not getting something done. With the odds of bipartisanship so slim, Jonathan, this means that ultimately the Democrats will likely have to rely on that super wonky process called budget reconciliation. Before we go any farther, can you just give us a budget reconciliation 101? Yeah, sure. So basically, you know, once upon a time, most legislation passed through the House and Senate with a simple majority. Senate adopted some rules that allowed senators to hold up debate, and it evolved over time, but it means that if senators want to hold up debate indefinitely and effectively block a bill that way, it takes 60 senators to overrule that. The exception, one of the exceptions, is uh, bills that are part of the budget process. There was a, a sense that, gee, at the end of the year when Congress is trying to make the numbers add up, we should be able to do that without having to get 60 votes. It's just too hard. It's too cumbersome. Let's have a kind of special protected process where there's a set time for debate. You can't filibuster and, and, and 50 votes will pass. So that has become a vehicle for passing legislation. But the trick is you got to fit the legislation into those rules. Uh, and that's not easy. The rules of budget reconciliation are pretty arcane and very technical. Here are the two most important. One, any legislation must be related to the budget in a meaningful way. Two, bills cannot increase the deficit after a decade. The takeaway? Reconciliation could definitely work to increase ACA subsidies, but a public option is harder even if all the Dems end up on board. Budget reconciliation and tight majorities pose two very real challenges to advancing Democrats' more ambitious goals over the next two years. But if there is reason for optimism, it stems from the legacy of Obamacare. Jonathan, at one point you write, quote, "...universal coverage does not yet exist." Some of its principles now have wide acceptance. The boundaries of acceptable political conversation have changed quite possibly forever. What are you actually saying there, particularly as it pertains to this sort of shift in how we think about healthcare? Yeah, so the clearest sign that the political conversation has changed is the posture of Republicans in the 2018 and 2020 elections. Having spent so much time bashing Obamacare, Republicans were falling all over themselves to say, we are absolutely committed to protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Now, that that's not true. <laughs> they, that case in the Supreme Court is trying to take those protections away 
But the fact that they are so desperate to say that, those rhetorical shifts are really important. It seemed to me that when people talk about the importance of protecting people with pre-existing conditions, that part of the legacy of Obamacare is that healthcare is a right now. I don't think a lot of people thought that in 2010. I think that's correct. And I think, ironically, the the rhetorical victory right outpaces the reality on the ground, which is why we're in this debate now about Medicare for all. Um, we've established that ideal. Now, again, there's dissenters and it could come apart and the Supreme Court could do whatever, who knows. But rhetorically like that is, you know, that's where we are. You know, and then you look around and like there's people, okay, well, we're supposed to be giving, making sure people can get health care and lots of people can't get health care. So, I mean, you know, this stuff takes time, but the rhetorical commitments matter partly because I think they set a standard that you then, a mirror that you then hold up to reality. And you say, all right, where are we? What do we need to keep doing? Jonathan Cohn, thank you for taking the time to talk to us on Tradeoffs. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Uh, Trade-offs is the heart of all policy. (laughs) It's great to get a chance to kind of think about them and what they really mean. Jonathan Cohn's book, The Ten-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage, comes out February 23rd. There are two other important health policy stories we're watching this week. First, President Biden sets his sights on covid The president signed several executive orders Wednesday, including a nationwide mask and social distancing mandate that applies to federal workers and federal buildings. He has appointed a COVID response coordinator to keep the White House up to speed on supply and distribution issues. And finally, he's keeping the U.S. in the World Health Organization. Second story, ACA action. On January 28th, Biden is expected to issue executive orders starting up a new ACA open enrollment period, and he plans to take steps to strengthen Medicaid. I'm Dan Gorenstein, and this is Tradeoffs. California Attorney General Javier Becerra is President Joe Biden's pick to lead the Department of Health and Human Services. Becerra has made a name for himself defending the ACA and going toe-to-toe with some of the biggest players in healthcare. Yeah, boy, does he get policy, he gets the law, but he brings it back to why does it matter to real people. What drives Javier Becerra's health policy views, and what could he do about the country's growing healthcare consolidation problem? Next time on Tradeoffs. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Tradeoffs, and a special welcome to our new NPR One listeners. You can keep in touch with us between episodes by signing up for our newsletter. Click on the link in the show notes or sign up at tradeoffs.org. And, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at TradeoffsPod. Tradeoffs is produced by Christine Fennessy and Ryan Levy, Chief of Strategy and Operations Jessica Silverman, Communications Manager Matt Clyburn, Operations Assistant Jamie Song, Sound Designer Andrew Perella, and Senior Producer Leslie Walker. The Tradeoffs theme song was composed by Ty Sitterman with additional music this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Additional thanks to Catherine Howe Boutros. Thanks also to all our listeners who helped to support our work, including Kai Romero, David Hebner, and Julie Krug. Tradeoffs is supported in part by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, Arnold Ventures, the Leonard Davis Institute of Health Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, 
West Health, the California Healthcare Foundation, and the National Institute of Health Management. The views expressed in this episode are those of the individuals and not those of trade-offs, staff, advisors, or funders. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 